0: That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Welcome, live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center, presenting Executive Director Jonathan Haupt. In conversation with best-selling author, award-winning author, Laura Trentham. Take it away, Jonathan.
0: Hey,
2: welcome to another episode of Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, coming to you from beautiful Beaufort here in the heart of South Carolina Lowcountry. This show is really my chance to share a little bit of that spotlight I've inherited from my friend and my mentor, Pat Conroy, as an opportunity to illuminate the lives and the books of some other writers. Sometimes those are writers I know very well, and other times they're writers I'm meeting for the first time. Tonight's guest, Laura Trenham, falls somewhere in between the author of more than 20 books, Laura, is joining us from the other end of the Palmetto State tonight, the upcountry of South Carolina, where she now lives and writes. And she's had an interesting path to becoming a writer, something we'll certainly talk about in our conversation tonight. Laura is a native of Tennessee and a chemical engineer, of all things, by training, career I was once headed toward myself. But she took a leap of faith to pursue her love of writing, and that's led to, as I said, more than 20 books of historical and contemporary romance, as well as contemporary women's fiction. Her military family-inspired novels in the Heart of the Hero series, The Military Wife, and more recently, An Everyday Hero, have received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Booklist. And if her Goodreads and Amazon reviews are any indication, those books have found a wide and welcoming audience among readers from military families and beyond. On my count, Laura has five or six romance series, including the Sweet Home Alabama series, three books of which uh, were reissued earlier this week, the Cotton Bloom series, Highland Georgia series, and Spies and Lovers' Historical Romance series. And they have the kinds of titles that would make me blush if you could see me right now. Her, (laughs) Her works have been recognized with top pick status from RT Book Reviews as Amazon Best Romances, and she's been a finalist for the Maggie Award and the National Reader's Choice Award, and her novel, Leave the Night On, was also named an iBooks Best Book and was featured on NPR. So, Laura, welcome to our live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center show. Well,
3: thank you very much, Jonathan. It's great to be here.
2: Uh, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, You and I have a shared past, which I have not mentioned in our introduction so far, but it's a story worth recounting. And it's the sort of thing that only happens in our world of literature here. You and I went to high school together for a year, for our senior year, Martin Westview High School, class of 1991. And uh, we sort of drifted apart thereafter, as people do. But about a year ago, I guess, maybe a little longer than that, I was following a book tour blog that I follow. Uh, Susie is Susie approved book tours. Incidentally, shout out to Susie herself, uh, Suzanne Weinstein-Leopold, celebrating a birthday this week. But that was a book tour, blog tour, that had been very kind to the book that I'm associated with, Our Prince of Scribes. And I started following it. And one day uh, there popped up in the feed your book, The Military Wife. And I thought, how strange that there would be two Laura Trentums in the world, (laughs) and the other one would be a writer. That seemed sort of unlikely in the moment and because it's a blog tour it kept showing up every single day which finally prompted me to go to your website and discover there was in fact just the one Laura Trentum and it was you and uh, you were at that point the author not of one book but of more than a dozen and that you too were right here in South Carolina of all places about three hours away from where I am and through the miracle that is social media, we've since reconnected and gotten to see each other a couple times. And now here we are on the radio talking about your writing
3: I know. It's such a small world. And I remember when your friend request popped up, I'm like, oh, my God, Jonathan Hopp. I've wondered so many times what had happened to you through the years. And it's just amazing how our paths recrossed and the way they did. And I did not know you considered chemical engineering, by the way.
2: I did, actually, until I broke more beakers than anyone else at the University <laughs> of Tennessee Martin Campus Chemistry <laughs> Department, and I realized that was perhaps not my destiny after all, so I made the switch to uh, literary life uh, in college. It came a little later for you, and I'd love for you to, for you to talk a little bit about that. How does one go from being a chemical engineer to being multi-talented novelist?
3: Well, you know, through high school, I I loved English in high school, but I also loved chemistry in high school. And my dad talked me into, he was like, you will starve as an English major. What are you going to do? Are you going to teach? And he, of course, is a college professor. And he was like, you do not want to be teach college. You do not want to do that. So he sort of steered me. And my brother had already become an engineer, a different kind of engineer. So I was like, you know, I like chemistry. I'm good at math. So why not? I'll go into chemical engineering. It, and Especially when I saw the starting salaries, the average starting salaries. I'm like, that sounds yeah. good to me. <laughs> so I went through chemical engineering and I don't regret it for a minute. I made amazing friends. Um, I worked, you know, I did the whole I worked in plants. That was kind of my specialty. So I was wearing steel toe boots and a hard hat and I was out nice. on the shop floor and I, I actually really enjoyed it. And Then I also switched companies. I worked for um, a company that made fuel cells for cars. So I got to go to Japan and meet with Nissan because we were working on trying to get rid of the uh, combustion engine and put a fuel cell in an actual automobile. So, I mean, I did some really interesting stuff, and I don't regret it at all. But through that whole time, I was an avid reader. I mean, I had a book. I carried a book around with me in high school, if you remember. I mean, I I always had a book with me. So, and through the years, I just read and read and read. And I, you know, the little inkling of maybe writing a book would cross my mind, but I never, like a lot of people, I'm like, oh, that would be neat to write a book, but I never actually sat down and did the work until I had kids and I started staying at home with the kids. And once my youngest got in preschool, I'm like, you know, I really, I am not made to just sit around and clean the house. I'm not, I don't enjoy that. <laughs> so I'm like, I've got to do something. I, and I didn't want to go back to full-time work in chemical engineering, especially because what I'm good at is plant work, and plants run 24-7. And when mm-hmm. I was doing that, I was on call. I would get, you know, calls in the middle of the night. You would had to be available weekends. I'm like, I don't want to do that with kids either. And so I just sat down one day, and I got an idea for a book. I'm like, I'm just going to see what happens. I did not tell anyone I was doing it. Not even my husband knew I was trying to write a book because I really, I didn't want to fail and then have people ask me, well, how's that, how's that book going? And be like, well, I gave up or whatever. And so I just sat down I started writing. And about three weeks later I had written probably 40,000 words. I mean, it just poured out of me. And I'm like, I think I'm going to actually finish this book. And sure enough, It took me about six weeks to write a 90,000-word book, and I immediately started the second book, and I finished it in about two months. And so I – that first year I started writing, I wrote four books. All of them were about 90,000 words. Uh, Now, they weren't great. (laughs) (laughs) Let me say that. They were not – looking back, I'm like, I thought it was great. I thought, this is the best book ever. So I I was really confident in myself. That's never been my problem is a lack of confidence. I do not have imposter syndrome
0: (laughs) like some writers
3: suffer with. I'm like, this is awesome. And so I joined Romance Writers of America. These were historical romances. And they have contests. And I'm a very competitive person. I always like getting good grades. You know how I was.
2: I remember that, too. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So I started entering these contests, sure, I was going to win them all. I think I entered seven uh, just on the first go. And I did not win them. I didn't even final in most of them. And, I, I mean, I was, like, reading the feedback, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I need to actually, I need to put the work in. I need to study books. I need to take classes on writing because I did take a couple English classes in college but I had never taken creative writing or anything like that. So and I actually really enjoyed it. It motivated me. The bad scores on those contests motivated me to get better instead of, you know, defeating me. And so I immediately signed up for classes. I ordered books, I read books, and I taught myself how to write. And But through those contests, I did final in one, shockingly. And from that contest, I got hooked up with my now agent. Um, And through her is how I've, you know, kind of proceeded through publishing. So Mm -hmm. it's been quite a journey.
2: What year was that? What year did you first connect with your agent?
3: Uh, I started, let's see, 2014, 2014, 2013, 2014 is when I signed with my agent
2: the number of books you have in publication right now or forthcoming is just phenomenal for someone who's been at it for that period of time. But as you say, you you have to write the the bad manuscripts. You have to write the unpublishable yes. books to learn how to write the good ones. And I think that's yes. a lesson that's lost on so many burgeoning writers that, that that's the point at which they, they give up. Uh, and that's yes. really just the beginning of the arc of a writing life. So right. I'm so glad you stuck with it. I'm just amazed at what's come from it. But what I, was the first book that you had out? What was the first thing that actually made it into publication? Uh,
3: first, So I never gave up on any of my books.
2: And okay.
3: I don't know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Like I never put a manuscript mm-hmm. under the bed like some writers talk about. So that very yes. first book that I sat down to write mm-hmm. – uh, I didn't tell anybody. That was the first book that I sold.
2: So After you back rewriting to that you book. Worked and worked. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: I reworked – uh about seven times I rewrote that book. <laughs> <laughs> about seven times. And I mean the yes. version that got bought and released is nothing like the version that I started with. So I, maybe I should have put it away, but I love that book so much. And, of course, because I had rewrote it so many times, uh, that's probably one of my favorite books just because I spent so much time with it, with those yeah. characters. But uh, all four of the books that I wrote that first year, uh, I'm actually rewriting the fourth one right now, uh, and it's going to get released as well. So all four, uh, the first three have already been released, and the fourth one will be released next year. But you know, okay. I'm rewriting what I did now that first year, yep. and mm-hmm. it's almost taking me longer to rewrite it than if I just started from scratch. That's how much my writing has changed since that time.
2: So, I think that's so often the real work of writing is the rewriting. It's it's the, yes. the rebuilding and the reconstruction of it. And if yes. you love the characters and if you love the story, then it's worth the time to put back in. So. Yes. I really and love it. You, you've done that. You've stuck it out with those first manuscripts. Well,
3: and that's my favorite part, to be honest. The drafting is a chore for me. Um, mm. To me, that is the hardest part of writing is that first draft. The magic, the fun to me happens when I'm editing it. Um, when stuff starts to fit together better and you come up with these great lines and that's what I like is the editing part of it anyway. The drafting part is much more difficult for me. And I know some, it's mm-hmm. totally opposite for other writers. That's what makes writing so interesting is because every writer approaches it in a different way and there's no, there's not necessarily a wrong way to do it.
2: No, there isn't. There seem to be an infinite number of right ways to do it and yes, every writer exactly. has to find her or his own. And it sounds like you've definitely found yours. So since you feel yes. so strongly about about that first book, let's actually mention it by title. What was uh, the first one that you had out? And...
3: It's called An Indecent Invitation. Is that the one that makes you blush? <laughs> it
2: does, yes.
3: <laughs> and uh, that is part of the Spies and Lovers series, It's historical romance, because that's what I grew up reading, It's historical romance. And I actually did not have any inkling that I would write contemporary romance or contemporary women's fiction until I signed with my agent and she was like well send me some book ideas uh while I try to sell this series she was like let's start another you start another series send me some book ideas and so I sent her four historical and one contemporary and she was like you know contemporary is really hot right now so why don't you try to write a contemporary book And that's how I started the Sweet Home Alabama series, and that series is the series that I sold to St. Martin's Press Um, very soon after I sold my historical series. My historical series was on submission for uh, 10 months, I think, and so while it was on submission, I actually wrote an entire other manuscript, and my agent took it on submission, and I ended up selling five books in like three months.
2: That's incredible. That that, so, means, that certainly makes you an outlier among folks who are trying out there. That's a pretty remarkable track record out of the gate, I would say.
3: Um, and it also I mean,
2: sounds I, like you have a very supportive agent, too.
3: I do. It's Kevin Lyon. I should mention her. She's awesome. Uh, she's. She's a really good person just to bounce ideas off of, and she also is very encouraging. Even though she doesn't get paid for any of my indie pubbing, she's still Mm -hmm. very supportive of that, and her agency uh, is working on selling like foreign rights and, and things like that for my indie pub stuff. So she's great. I love her.
2: So how many of your series do you consider active right now? Books series to which you're you're adding new manuscripts, adding new books? Um
3: I am probably gonna add to my Sweet Home Alabama series since I have rights back and I'm indie pubbing okay. it. I'm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful to add to my cotton bloom series. There are six books in that series. I get emails all the time with like, Are you gonna write such and such story? Uh, when is such and such going to get their book? So I'm hopeful to add to that series. It will not be through St. Martin's. It would be on my own. Uh, the Highland Georgia series is complete. The third book on it is coming out in September. And it's, I will not continue that series, mainly because it's about—it's really hard to come up with the reasons for somebody from Scotland to be in Georgia. <laughs> I came up with three reasons for three books, yeah. and now I'm done with that. <laughs>
2: the boxes and have all been checked now
3: yes and so and I'm <laughs> continuing my historical series and then the Heart of a Hero series is complete with just two books unfortunately but I am writing actually I'm working on a proposal right now for my agent for another women's fiction it'll be more along the lines of maybe like a southern gothic so I'm excited about um, it
2: very nice something to look forward to yeah and it'll I'm be the first about,
3: time i've written in first person i've never done that so i'm giving that a shot
2: excellent well that there'll be a learning curve for that too but yeah think but writers need that we need to keep challenging ourselves
3: with exactly
2: different subject matter different genres different points of view so i think that's wonderful that you're doing that I'm really curious about what it is like for a writer with multiple active series, some contemporary, some historical, to be living in all of those worlds at the same time in your imagination. Do you feel like those are, are worlds and characters and places that you're carrying around with you and they're just, you're just waiting for one plot or one character to rise to the surface? Or is it more deliberate than that? Uh,
3: for me, that is it's usually while I'm writing a book, a secondary character will walk on the page and be like, Hey, what's up? I need a book of my of my own <laughs> And so that character all of a sudden becomes like stuck in my head and I start thinking, Oh, okay, well what's his backstory or her backstory and, you know, how how do they fit in this world? And usually while I'm writing a story, the next story just sort of organically develops. I actually wish that I was a better planner and I could – because I know authors, and I'm jealous of them, that plan out a whole series arc. And they know how many books, and they know, you know, what each – the characters in each book and how the overarching – Plot is going to go for the series. And unfortunately, you would think coming from an analytical place like I do that that would be right up my alley. But I plot a book before I start writing. I usually jump in. I have no idea what's going to happen. I sometimes don't even know how the book is going to end until I get closer to the middle of writing the book. So I do no pre plotting whatsoever. I do no mm-hmm. character studies. I just jump in and start writing the first scene. And I get to know the characters just through the writing. And they surprise me sometimes. That's why I like doing it that way. I have literally gasped when I've been writing because something has come out. I'm like, I didn't even know that about her. Uh, When you're really in the flow, things just come out of your subconscious. So personally, I love writing in different series. I love writing different time periods because I get tired of writing contemporaries, and I'm like, man, I just want to jump back in time, and I want to work on the historical. So I just do that. Or, man, I'm really tired of doing research on this historical, and then I can jump in, into a southern contemporary where, you know, I'm writing about what I know, and it really requires very little research. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I love going back and forth. I do not have a problem doing that at all.
2: The, uh, the novelist Patti Callahan Henry describes her writing process very similar to to what you said. She said she writes because she wants to know what's going to happen next. And uh-huh. I think uh, she, she would certainly agree with you that characters kind of take charge at a certain point and, and plot their own course. And you discover things about them you never could have planned, and never should have planned. But it grows organically out of the story once it has a momentum entirely of its own. You you mentioned research, and I want to circle back around to that, too, because you also said that you had started out writing historical romance because that is what you have been reading. Uh, What what writers were you drawn to early on? What were you? Um,
3: I was reading – I mean, I started – I picked up – my mom was an avid romance reader, and she – we would hit the used bookstores around – you know, where we grew up, and mom, my mom would just get bags full of these, like, historical and harlequins and all this stuff, and she'd keep them under her bed, and I would, like, go in there, and I'd take one, take my room and read it, but, I mean, I started reading, I started with harlequins, like, in middle school, but then I graduated to, like, the bigger Judith McNaught and Kathleen Woodiwiss, and I love Lisa Kleypas, she was a little bit later.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Um, Sabrina Jeffries I mean there's just so many Wonderful historical romance Writers and so um, I got Right before I started writing I got Into this I don't know if this ever Happens to you but I got into a reading Binge where I was reading A book a day or more I would go to the library and Just get a ton of books And I would just they weren't all romances. I was reading YA. I was reading just straight-up fiction. But I was just in this complete reading zone where I was reading a book a day while the kids were at school instead of cleaning the house, which I didn't enjoy. So I just read and read and read. And I was reading – I read some really great books, and I read some really not great books. And that's when it really was like, you know, this book wasn't great. And it got published by – you know, a big five publisher. I could do better than that, right? and that's really what prompted me to start writing. But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I read everything. I read everything.
2: As you should, as we all should. An immersive yes. reading experience is, is important, I think. And, and I do very much what you describe. I do binge reading. I go for long periods where I, I don't read anything. And then yes. when I do read, I'm not a trained speed reader, but I somehow have that pacing anywhere where I, if mm-hmm. I'm really into it. I can read 100 to 120 pages an hour, so two pages yep. a minute. and. and retain it, retain the whole thing, uh, which is Mm -hmm. a remarkable skill to have. So I I do it exactly as you described, with armloads of books, hours and hours a day, week after week, and then I take a break and I don't do it again for a while. Yeah, I'm the
3: same way. And actually Mm -hmm. I found, unfortunately, after I started writing, um, I read more critically now. And so it's sometimes not as an enjoyable experience if the book is not as well written as I would like. Like, I guess I see errors now when years ago I would not have noticed stuff. So, I'm, that's when I know it's an excellent book, is when I am not paying attention to sentence structure or, or, you know, stuff like that. That stuff doesn't bother me. I know the story has completely transported me. So, I've well, become a much pickier reader now.
2: Well, I think that goes back to what you said about the joy for you of rewriting, of having that editorial critical eye now with your own work. It's hard to switch that off when you're looking at other people's works, too. Yes, when I was in publishing, I remember going to uh, publishing conferences and going out to dinner with copy editors. And you know they can't switch it off. so they would they would receive the menu from the server and then they would mark it up and hand it back with corrections on the menu because you just, you can't turn that mm. off sometimes when it's hardwired. Oh into yeah. It.
3: You can't turn it off. Yes.
2: But it does it does sort of become, you know, weirdly empowering to see that not ideal books, that bad books, let's be honest about mm-hmm. it, get into publication too that yes. That, you know that door can be opened. You can go through it because other people have whether they've mm-hmm. have all uniformly deserved it or not. And that's too a lesson that I think burgeoning writers really need to take to heart that, that not every book is a perfect book. Not every writer is a perfect writer. And yet these books are out there and they have meaning in the world. You yes. mentioned uh, one other thing I wanted to circle back to, and that was uh, your mom's reading habits, and I've seen your mom yes. recently because you brought her to the, uh, the talk I gave yeah. uh, at the library near you, so I got to see her for the first time since I was 18, which was a really special day for me, Yes. but uh, you said she would buy books by the bag load, and I've have, I have seen that so many times. Mm-hmm with romance readers that it's an insatiable mm-hmm. appetite that they need to follow multiple authors because no one writer can produce a, as many books as they are capable of reading at a time. Yeah, uh, And if you go to book festivals, as I do so often, you will see dedicated readers of literary fiction by one or two or three or four, and you'll see mm-hmm. romance writers by 12 or 20 and just, and, and, with absolute certainty, they're going to read every single one of them. It's a yeah. really dedicated audience. It is. So what have your experiences been like with your readers? What do you, you hear from folks? You mentioned already that they've gotten invested with characters and are waiting for books to come out specifically about those characters. And I've seen that even in your Goodreads reviews, I mean, many of which also make me blush, by the way but you have a a very loyal following out there, and I'm curious about what your interactions with those folks have been.
0: Um,
3: I have a great interaction with my readers. Uh, I do have a private reader group that people can join. I give away arcs there, and um, I'll ask them about covers. They're usually the super readers, super romance readers, and you're right. I mean, they are avid readers, And I could never write fast enough to appease them. But that's the great thing about the whole the burst of indie publishing. And romance writers really have led that revolution. Uh, They're the savviest of marketers, the savviest of writers. Uh, They, I don't know what percentage of the indie publishing market. Is romance writers, but it's got to be 60 or 70 percent. I mean, there are other genres that have indie uh, authors, but romance really led the way, and a lot of it was because traditional publishers are on a six month schedule or nine month schedule sometimes, where they release, Mm -hmm. you know, one book every six months in your series. Whereas with indie publishing, and
2: Laura, are you still there? Hey, Laura, are you still there? Are you with us?
1: Well, so it seems Laura has dropped uh, from the show. I don't know if she's had a weather event or an Internet event. I hope that she'll call back in. We'll try to go ahead and get her on. Let's see if I can call her and find out what's going on. Interesting conversation, Jonathan. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. Hold just one
1: hold just one second. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm i I'm, I'm so happy to hear that she has gone indie because that's really, really important. Are you pro- I'm
3: unable to Oops. answer your call right now, if you will. leave well, message,
1: Well, nope, be happy she's, to the she's not, not there. So okay. <laughs> so I'm not really sure what happened. At the happened. tone, please record
0: um, your message. When you finish recording, is. you may hang up or press 1 for more options. To leave Hi, a callback Laura. number, are press okay? 5. Are
3: you I'm
1: okay, okay Laura? My call Yes, my call just your dropped call for some your call just dropped. That's okay. I was saying that I was so impressed that you decided to go ahead and indie publish, as so many other romance writers have. Um, it's impressive because you have a wonderful following, but I think now in the time of COVID isn't it maybe the time to go ahead and indie publish when you have an established following? And I'll turn it back over to you, Jonathan. Are you guys there? Hello? Yes.
0: Hello, it's Jonathan. Hello.
3: Hi.
2: Hello. Are we all back? (laughs) Excellent.
3: All right. I'm not sure what happened. It just, the call just dropped. Um, so Pam was asking me about indie publishing in the time of COVID, which, yeah. yes, I think definitely. My last part of the Hero book came out at the end of February, and it was supposed to get picked up as a Target book club pick for the summer, and that got canned because of COVID. So I think that the it's going to – and I think Barnes & Noble – Some of them are still closed. I think that that's going to drive more and more people sooner. I mean, it was already moving in that direction, but I think it's going to quicken that pace. So, yeah, I think romance writers have the leg up because people are already established as indie publishers in romance.
2: I've seen stories recently that book sales, in the big sense, print and digital, are up by four percent or five percent in some cases. People who are who had been putting off their reading lives have now now have the time and, and fewer right. competing activities, so they're circling back around to that. And even with so many stores closed or with limited access, in the case of a lot of my indie bookseller friends, people are still finding their way to books and they're finding their way back to reading, which is is always wonderful when that happens. And I think things like this, things that are are digital, like this show, that have a reach of becoming more and more important because the the world of the in-person book tour is is on hold, if not gone, and the world has changed quite a bit. Uh, our, our local book club in Buford, the local Pulpwood Queens chapter, uh, now meets online. Because of that, we're able to uh, Zoom with authors from around the country. Uh, Claire Fullerton, uh, one time and future mm-hmm. guest on, on, on this show, is uh, was with us last night as well. Uh, and, and that book club, and that's been great to see that, that we've had a way to connect digitally in a way that maybe we you can... You have reached the maximum
0: time permitted for recording your message. If you're satisfied with the message, press 1. To listen to your message, press 2. To erase and re-record, press 3.
2: I'm very satisfied with my message. I have
0: no idea what that... (laughs) Is. If you're satisfied with the message, Thank press one. You. To listen to your message, press two. To erase and re-record, press three.
1: I, uh, I'm sorry. I thought I think that we're on a couple different wavelengths here. Um, who's? If you're eight, satisfied
0: six, with four. the message, press Oops. one. To listen to your message, press two. <laughs> to erase and re-record, but press three. Don't
1: you love the internet? Who's an eight six four? I do. Is I'm that eight, six, you? Four.
0: Sorry, you're yeah, having trouble. But, uh, okay. Your message yep. has Are been sent. Please try again uh, later. Okay. Goodbye.
1: <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. That's ah. very weird. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm so sorry guys. Well, this is what happens when we change up phone numbers and everything else. Please go ahead accept my apologies. I'm doing editing tonight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> go that's, ahead.
2: That's all that's all right, Pam. That's, thank you.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: So Laura, I want to uh, sort of transition at this point and talk about how you came to write the Heart of Hero series. How you made the decided to make the transition to women's fiction. So, so, what prompted that?
3: Things just seemed to fall in my lap. But basically, my editor at St. Martin's, who I love, Eileen Child, we had worked together on uh, nine or ten books. And she came to me saying that they had an idea to publish a couple of women's fiction books based around the military. And they had a nonfiction military writer who was going to act sort of as a consultant uh, on these books. And she asked me if I was interested in writing it. So I didn't even write a proposal or anything for these books. We had just worked together long enough. She knew my style. Um, And so we just sort of, between the two of us, brainstormed an idea that became The Military Wife. And I just started writing it. Um, So it just sort of, it was just an opportunity to write something that I was interested in writing, but I don't know that I would have taken the plunge without her coming to me and asking me if I was interested in doing it. So that's how that came about. It wasn't even so much. I didn't plan it, <laughs> but I really enjoyed writing it. And so that's why I'm like, you know, i I really enjoyed this. It's a little bit meatier subject matter than my romances. Um, the romance is more secondary to the heroine story. So, you know, I I really enjoyed it. And so I'm going to continue writing women's fiction as well.
2: Both of the books in the series, Military Wife and An Everyday Hero, I thought were fantastic. And and they delve deeply and really authentically into some big topics, PTSD and survivors' guilt, And, you know, this whole notion about um, how one grieves and loses and honors part of your life that you, you can never have back. And, and right. still, yet still life, life goes on. There is in, in life as in novels, you know, the plot continues. New characters are introduced, and, and decisions have to be made in response to that. So mm-hmm. I really enjoyed both of the books. But I'm curious to hear about, about the research. You are not a military wife, and yet you write about it very authentically. How did, you, how did you research that novel in particular? Well, my best friend
3: is a military wife. She's married to a recently retired Army colonel, and uh, we met in college before they ever even started dating. And so I've seen her – the character was not based on her, but some of her struggles. She was also a chemical engineer, and when she got married, she moved around from base to base, She found it very difficult to make friends. She found it very difficult to find a job, even though she was a chemical engineer. And so I did incorporate that into the book. Um, There's a subplot about the women starting up a business to give these women on base, you know, something besides just following their husbands around. Um, So, I think that's really difficult for military wives, and I actually have heard from several wives, uh, military wives since then, talking about that. And so really it's just based on her experiences talking to me, and then some of her – and I've visited her on several bases. So I didn't know at the time I was doing research, but, you know, (laughs) life experience. (laughs) And then, you know, I could ask her questions. I could ask her husband questions. So that's – and then I also read some nonfiction books about um, – the first book involves uh, one of the male characters going through buds, uh, which is SEAL training. And so I did mm-hmm. read nonfiction books based on that, and I did have the military consultant, and he read the manuscript to make sure it was accurate. Uh, so – more reading is how I do the research generally and life experiences and just you know people you meet throughout your life kind of informs you and helps kind of guide your characters so
2: all good avenues in and you're fortunate to have that many different resources to draw on for a book like this too because getting it right getting it authentically true is sort of essential if you're Trying to attract and honor as you have a target right. audience of military families who know immediately whether you get it right or not. Right. And and yeah, from that's what I've really, seen in your, your reader reviews, you definitely got it right. There, there seem to be folks yeah. who recognize themselves and their lives in your writing.
3: That's really been the most gratifying thing is hearing from actual military wives saying, "Hey, this really resonated with me. I really appreciate this." Talking about the harder part of it. Um, and like for the for an everyday hero one of the characters is an amputee
0: and
3: i've got to say thank goodness for youtube it's amazing what you can find on the internet but i mean there's uh there was a youtube channel called the amputee ot and it's a woman who's also an occupational therapist and she describes Everything about uh, being an amputee and how do you put your prosthetic on and you know here are the here's the good things and the bad things about certain prosthetics and I mean it really makes research the internet makes research like that so much easier where you can almost connect with this person and get at least a sliver of what their life is like so I incorporated that as well
2: since you don't outline don't really plot things out in advance do you research simultaneously with the writing do you sort of write yourself into a question and then have to go stop and research it or do those things happen separate from each other
3: i usually try to keep writing because if you don't you'll never It just you get so bogged down you'll never finish so a lot of times what i'll do Mm -hmm. is i'll write what i think is right highlight it and then go back Mm -hmm. and spend a whole day watching videos or reading or researching and then fix it on edits. When I'm drafting a book, I try not to stop too much in research. I'll just put in question marks or highlight uh, as a note to myself that, hey, I need to go back and verify that.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the characters and the plot of A, of a Military Life and then also an everyday hero because I, I want to give our listeners a chance to really get to know the story a bit, too. So in the military life, we've got a war widow, Harper Lee Wilcox, whose husband, as you say, is a, a Navy SEAL, killed in action. And she's got a young son, Ben, who has never had a chance to, to know his father other than through stories. And uh, we add into that story uh, Noah's best friend, also a Navy SEAL, who's, who's been injured, wounded in action, uh, Bennett Caldwell, the man for whom Harper's uh, son, Ben, is named um, talk a little bit about where these characters uh, came from. Where
3: did the characters come from? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: um, Do they appear full form on the page, or did you have this? Did you have this scenario in mind as, as you started to write this book that this this would be about a war widow with a son who has not known his father and, and sort of so, grow it from there? Yeah.
3: So my editor and I, she's the one she suggested, A War Widow, um, and and she also is the one that, that suggested going from present to past, uh, which mm-hmm. I had never done that before. I know that's very popular with quite a few women's fiction literary books. So she suggested that, and... But the meat of the characters, I, and the settings, and that sort of thing, I came up with. Um, my thing, I guess, is Southern set books, so I knew it wanted to be. I knew I wanted to set it in the South, and I had been up to Nag's Head for vacation a few years ago, um, and it's and it's close to the, the Navy base, so that's where I set it. Um, so it's it's so hard to answer where the characters come from, because they sort of kind of walk through the door, and then I get to mm-hmm. know them on the page. So, mm-hmm. I usually come up with the first the first chapter, and like I said, I really don't plot it so much. I knew the basic characters, War Widow, and Seal Best Friend, and from there, um, and then we also discussed her having a best friend, and that's a sort of a secondary storyline with some PSD, TD um, overtones uh, because I think that's something that a lot of military families face. When your husband comes home alive, you still and not even physically injured, but emotionally injured with head injuries and concussions and stuff like that, which we know can lead to a lot of, you know, mental illness kind of, kind of things that need Mm -hmm. therapy. And these guys, being around some military guys, you know, they don't want to admit any sort of weakness or they don't want to admit when they need help. So that was a secondary storyline in in the
2: military life. In in both books, we have characters who've come home from combat missing pieces either, either literally or figuratively. We have, as you say, uh, amputee Emmett Lawson in an everyday hero. But, um, even in a military life where we have characters who are missing pieces of themselves or trying to, to fill in gaps in their lives. And I think that's what makes such a compelling story in, in both novels. It makes such compelling characters too. this idea that something is absent and it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's a void that needs to be filled in some way. Something is gone that can't really ever be replaced, but there's a need for for a continuation, nonetheless.
3: Yes, there's there's got to be an acceptance there, and got to have the find the ability to move forward somehow. Whether that's through therapy, whether it's through you know a best friend, whether it's through starting a new uh, business, something that gives you. A child, in the case of the military wife, you know, she's pregnant when her husband dies, but she has to Mm. move on because she's having this child. And so she's got to be there for that child.
2: That was uh, actually the case with Pat Conroy's first wife, Barbara, too, also a war widow and also pregnant with uh, her second child, not her first, uh, when her husband, Wes, died in combat. Uh, So... It it was a story that that resonated with me in a couple of ways, too. And that was true of an everyday hero, too. I was really drawn to these characters. Uh, We've got uh, Greer Hadley, who's sort of uh, come home with her uh, tail between her legs, failing to launch a music career in Nashville, and gets herself into a little bit of trouble. We don't give too much away in that regard, but has to do some (laughs) community service, which brings her into the life of of two other people, one she's never met before, a a young girl, uh, sort of, precocious teenager, Allie Martinez, and they get to use uh, songwriting. Writing is healing. A subject that's very dear to me, something that we do quite a bit of at the Conroy Center. And this makes for a really yeah. compelling story. But she's also reconnected with a high school classmate, which seems outlandish to me. I'm sure that never actually happens in life. But uh, <laughs> these two people who knew each other in high school have a reconnection too. And that's uh, our, our amputee character, Emmett Lawson. And I found myself as I was reading about reading through An Everyday Hero, thinking of a book that in many ways, or a book series, I should say, that seems completely disconnected, The Witcher. I'm not sure if you've read those or seen uh, the TV series. But the sort of whole... Yes. Go ahead. No, I have. I've looked at the Audible. Oh, yes. The plot hinges on the idea that people linked by destiny will always find each other, and that seems to Mm -hmm. be what brings these three characters together Is a sort of you know, hardscrabble, a family unit of a sort. So did this one sort of unfold organically as well, or did you have the idea that uh, of these three characters and sort of rolling out the plot to then see what happens when they're brought into each other's lives?
3: Uh, I actually pitched a completely different book to my editor, and she said it was going to be too dark. So she's like, see what else you can come up with. And so that's when I... I thought of an everyday hero and that first scene where she gets in a little bit of trouble uh, came to me while I was listening to a song by Pink, who I absolutely love, who's also got a bit of a rebellious spirit. Um, So I just, this is probably my favorite heroine that I've ever written just because she is so imperfect yet really tries to do the right thing like she really wants to do the right thing and I just love her so much uh the teenager I drew on experiences I have a 16 year old son and he can be quite precocious as well so I had a lot of fun writing her and her kind of snark teenage snark when it comes to dealing with adults uh so, I just loved I loved her, and then Emmett. I didn't base it on my friend's husband, even though he's he was an he was an army captain when he deployed to Afghanistan. And so I actually talked to him quite a bit about what it was like over there. And he would have been just like Emmett when he lost his leg. He did those same patrols, um, where something could have gone wrong. Uh, so. I sort of based his experience on my friend's husband. I really need to like give her a cut of this, don't I?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. I, you know, if, if you say it in a, if you say it in a radio interview, it's legally binding from what I understand. That's right. So I'm
0: like,
3: dang, I need maybe... to give you more than just a signed copy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, But no, they've been awesome about, you know, sharing their experiences with me. But again, from that first scene, I just feel like the whole book kind of unfolded for me. And I just, this it's probably my favorite book that I've ever written, An Everyday Hero is. And it came, actually it came super easy. It was a very easy book to write. It kind of almost wrote itself. Um, some books are a struggle. This
1: one was not. This one was a joy to write.
2: It comes through I'm, in the reading of it, too. That's
1: I'm going to step in right here and say, Laura, um are yes. on the Global Radio Network book review team fell in love with your book. They raved about it. They reviewed it over and over and over again. I think every member of the team went crazy for that particular book. Oh. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. (laughs) Will you please tell everyone your website and social media? Uh, My website is www.lauratrenum.com.
3: And you can find me on Twitter, at Laura Trenum, on Facebook. I think I'm Laura Trenum Author on Facebook. Uh, so if you just search Laura Trenum, you'll find either my profile or my
1: author page. We I, will find you. I know where you are. Yeah. People can ask. There's not,
3: yeah, there's not a lot of Laura Trenums out there. That's why I... There are not. I went with, no.
1: Jonathan Haup, the Executive Director of the Pat Conroy Literary Center, will you please tell us briefly about the Pat Conroy Literary Center and where we can find you?
2: Absolutely. So the Conroy Center website is just simply patconroyliterarycenter.org and uh, we are on Facebook as both the Pat Conroy Literary Center and also as the Pat Conroy Literary Festival, which is our annual signature event which comes up this November 5th through the 8th as a virtual festival. So you'll be able to attend from anywhere. And we also have a really big virtual program coming up uh, about the middle of next month, our annual low country book club convention, which has been an in-person event for years, goes online on September 12th on Saturday, September 12th. And you'll be able to follow that live streamed on our Facebook page.
1: Jonathan, will you please tell everyone how you and I met with the anthology
2: Absolutely. That is a good story, a story with a happy ending as well, because it makes things like tonight possible. So I reached out to Pam after being a fan of several interviews she had done with some of my writer friends and asked if she would be interested in having me on the Authors on the Air Global Network as an interview about a book I am embarrassingly proud of called Our Prince of Scribes, writers remember Pat Conroy, Uh, of which I am co-editor and one of 67 contributing writers. And Pam very graciously had me on the show. And in the course of that interview, to my absolute surprise and delight, she asked me if I'd be willing to come back on and co-host an interview with some other writer, which I very happily agreed to do. And that has now grown into uh, my very own show, which I am honored to have, because it gives me a chance, as I've said, to share the spotlight and talk to some other writers right here on the show.
1: Well, I have to admit that Pat Conroy being my my literary hero, um hearing you speak about him made me feel and I've said this to you before, Jonathan, made me feel like I actually knew him, and i i you talked about intimate friendship and in details with M- Mr Conroy, and I have to thank you for that so much. Thank you so much. Who are you having on your show next month, Jonathan?
2: Well, this takes us right back around to Pat Conroy because my guest next month on September 23rd will be Valerie Sayers, who was a Beaufort High School student (laughs) of Pat Conroy's, a psychology student. And Valerie is now the author of six novels and a newly released short story collection, which we'll be talking about on the show called The Age of Infidelity. She was inducted into South Carolina's Literary Hall of Fame two years ago, just as her teacher Pat Conroy had been back in 1988. And Valerie serves on our board of directors at the Pat Conroy Literary Center, and she'll be one of our presenters and one of our workshop instructors at this year's annual Literary Festival. She is a fascinating writer and a wonderful teacher, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
1: As am I, and in the same evening, an hour before you speak to Valerie, Laura Trenum and I are going to have a conversation on Authors on the Air, aren't we? Yes. We are going to talk books. Indeed. We are going to talk everything that you two did not discuss tonight. Um, as I say, Laura's books are so favored by our, never mind our review staff, but also by our readers. I want to thank you both So much for being here tonight. I wish you safety and love and kindness in this era of COVID. I I can't wait to speak to you both again. Last words, Jonathan.
2: Uh, Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate you joining us on the show tonight. And quick shout out for your dad, Jimmy, who you mentioned early in our hour here. He's actually the reason that my wife is a microbiologist. You know, she took his class, and he was a wonderful mentor and teacher to her, and it has made her career path possible. So, so grateful to your family—not just to you, but to your family—for the way in which you have touched <laughs> our lives.
3: Well, I just love the fact that we reconnected after all these years, and there I, you go. I definitely yes, yeah, it's
1: just wonderful how books brings us all together. They do indeed. Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center, Jonathan Haupt and Laura Trenum. Thank you for listening, everybody, and thank you, Mom and Dad. We'll see you later.